The church used to be recognized as a force for good, but this is changing rapidly. Christians are now often seen as the bad guys, losing both respect and influence. In our post-Christian culture, how do we offer the gospel to those around us who view it not, as, not only as wrong, but possibly dangerous? Author Stephen McAlpine has just written a book about how our culture ended up this way and explains key points of tension between biblical Christianity and secular culture. And we are delighted to have him with us today. Welcome to Exposit the Word, Stephen. Oh, it's great to be with you from across the miles and the and the time distance and the uh, time differences as well. <laughs> yeah, it's good to good to see you, Stephen. Thanks for joining us. But before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a Christian. Uh, well, I actually grew up in Northern Ireland, so I was born in Northern Ireland. My parents were working class stock, and uh, were uh, married by Ian Paisley. Can you believe that? Where oh, they were, <laughs> <laughs> and we, my twin brother and I were dedicated by him. And uh, then we moved to Australia. Uh, it's a very different experience, uh, moving from very re hot religion almost to very lazy secularism. Um, I'm a bunch of, uh, my, my parents are divorced. I'm one of six boys, a couple of half brothers in there. And I have a twin brother who's a high level academic in Australia and an atheist. And I have a wife who's a psychologist and a couple of kids, one who's gone into ministry training herself. I obviously haven't put her off after all these years. So, <laughs> so yeah, we live in Perth, which is um, yeah down the sort of the west coast of uh, Australia, nice and isolated away from COVID at the moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You didn't seem to have uh, taken the accent with you, Stephen. No, I could put it on and say, catch yourself on. but <laughs> <laughs> There was a time when saying that you were a Christian may have scored you some bonus points, but we've seen a shift in this in recent years. When and how did this change? Well, that's an interesting question. As I was saying, in Northern Ireland growing up, and then we went back to live there when I was in my teens, uh, Christianity was the norm. It was almost the passe given of what our life was like. But Australia is very different. It was a lazy sort of secularism in which Christianity was sort of, you know, you're the do-gooder, but you, you're you somewhat a bit weak and you're uh, left to your own devices. But I think the shift really occurred uh, and it started, I guess, uh, slowly in the, in the academy through the sexual revolution, the shifts and changes in understanding about how language is used, the postmodern framework, deconstruction, all those things that were coming out of the universities. And of course, nothing stays in the universities. It comes out into other aspects of it. And I did my first degree in uh, literature, language and culture. And I was going, who came up with these crazy, you know, postmodern deconstructionist French ideas? This will never fly. And yet here we are. So anything that's sort of bottled in the academy eventually makes its way out into popular culture. And I think that shift occurred at the same time that there was a rapid uh, disaffection with institutions, with a lot of the things that were coming out of the uh, institutions, the, the churches were seen as failing. Uh, the standard conservative narrative was seen as uh, people weren't, you know, the moral majority in the US wasn't all that moral and it wasn't the majority. And those things started to take, uh, take shape, I think. Now, I would add this caveat to it. If you live in the West in a very well-to-do kind of elite, well-educated area of life, and area of a city, you, uh, that shift happened a long time ago. But if you're in a hard scrabble area, churches are still seen as places where good happens and where good people are who you can go to if you need help. So it's not as if simply uh, the shift happens the same way and same in everywhere. It happens different ways. Mm. Yeah. 
The Christian faith is one based on true facts and an exclusive belief in Christ. You've mentioned postmodernism. How does this fly in the face of a postmodern culture and what does postmodern actually mean? Yeah, well, I guess that's changed over time, hasn't it? Because in the 80s, the postmodern framework was uh, saying that all language is a power play. The way we use language is meant to oppress or keep people in certain positions, and especially the Christian framework that had been the Western framework, the Western canon, the modernity, the way science is put together, uses language in such a way as to say, this is right and this is discredited. And how about we reassess that and just say, let's lay bare the claims of science or modernity and Christianity and show them to be power plays to keep themselves in positions of power. And one thing that was said in the 80s was that everything will be up for grabs a little bit and Christianity will have a place in the marketplace, but it has to fight for itself. It can't make its, you know, it's, it's got no seat at the table just because it's Christianity. And I think what that sort of was saying is that there's, it's not that there's no such thing as truth. I don't think the postmodern person would particularly say that. They would say, you can't arrive at it. You can't declare what that actually is. So have a little bit of humility. It was the whole idea was the epistemological humility. You can't say that you know something particularly fully and you can't use that knowledge to leverage someone else. Now, the interesting thing for, for me now is that we're not filled with a very, we're not, the world that we're inhabiting now with the Christian framework in the West isn't full of humility. It's full of very zealous post-Christian frameworks yeah. who are saying you're hundred percent wrong. And we're going, I thought we had an open marketplace here, but that's not how it's become. So the Christian framework is actually, I would say, it's a good news gospel uh, coming against another version of a good news that's saying, actually, your version of what human flourishing looks like is wrong. Yeah. And there's another version that leaves Christianity behind that's right. And I think that's where we're at at the moment. Yeah. Give some practical examples of how the listeners may have actually bumped into this postmodern kind of culture that we live in at the moment. I mean, what, what on a day-to-day -day basis, what kind of examples and how would they have seen this play out in their day-to-day -day living? Well, I think one of the big issues is in the postmodern framework is the, the search for the authentic self, that the whole idea of postmodernity was to strip away the layers to get to the core understanding of what's going underneath all these power plays. And in particular, the, pri the primary power play was someone saying to you, you can't do that or whatever that is, or this is how sexuality is supposed to be. And the whole trans movement and the whole sexuality issue is built on the sense of a search for the authentic within yourself. That we're not looking for truth out there, if you remember the X-Files, <laughs> and we're not looking for truth across here in a community. We're looking for truth within ourselves. And it doesn't have to be the same truth for each person. It's what makes you your most authentic self. And at its core, that's what you see in every Disney movie. That's what you see in every ad. That's what you see in every person who says they come out because, and they leave their wife and their children, you know, Philip Schofield, for example, because he wants to be authentic. Yeah. Uh, that's the outworkings of the, I think of those postmodern frameworks. It's sort of saying, um, here in the past, modernity said these things are true and these are not. And we're going, how about this? How about this being true and that not being true? And so there's a real shift in where you find the locus of meaning in our culture. You see that in ads. You see that in what we read, uh, how things are presented to us. You see it in psychology now that the locus of who you are is somehow centered in some receptacle within you, which you can burrow into to find your true authentic self. 
And anyone who gets in the way of you doing what you wish to do in order to be your most authentic self is doing violence to you. That's a key issue, the violence aspect. And this is done on a very individual basis, right? So it's subjective. Whatever your truth is for you, we'll cheer you on, good for you, you know, and and, and whatever that truth is for your neighbour or for somebody else within your family, that's good for them and we're cheering them on and it's subjective as well, right? Yeah, that's why the issue in sexuality, the only uh, thing is consent. Consent is the big issue in sexuality because you can do anything with anyone at any time as long as as it's consensual because consent then says you're not doing a power play over someone else. Now, it's causing all sorts of problems. You can now get an app on your phone, a consent to go app, basically, <laughs> to, to, to you know, sleep with someone overnight, and they sign that form so that in the morning, you've both said that you've both had consent. It doesn't sound particularly romantic, but no. that's, that's what it reduces itself to. Consent is the key in this, yeah. in this setting, I think. Yeah. One of the surprising things is how Christians have been singled out when it comes to views over marriage, for example. You, you see, Muslims would believe and teach that marriage is between a man and a woman, but yet they're really asked to def- rarely asked to defend that view and are almost untouchable when it comes to challenging them on such a view. How is it that freedom of speech has seemed to stop when it gets to the doorstep of the church? Well, it's interesting. In, uh, one of the jobs I have takes me around Australia a bit and you get into an Uber at any airport anywhere in Australia and a Muslim taxi driver, a Muslim Uber driver, will ask you what you do. And when I tell him, the first conversation he wants to have is about Jesus. The second conversation he wants to have is about marriage and sexuality in, in the West. Very, I want to talk about it. One of the things you notice, though, as you said, it's like um, other faiths get a hall pass, even though if you speak to the average uh, Uber driver about marriage, much more conservative than even many Christians are on many things within sexuality. And one of the things there, uh, there's a great sketch on a, an Australian um, comedy show from a few years ago um, where there's all these people sitting around a table playing cards and they're playing uh, a deck of cards where one plays a race card and one plays a sexuality card and one plays, you know, all these different cards. And in the end, it's the, uh, the lesbian girl who's from another country who's, you know, who holds all the cards because... The key issue here is not whether those people have a view of sex that's the same as the Christian view and they're getting a hall pass. The key is the intersectional question. What level of power do we have in the culture compared to someone who's an immigrant, who's a Muslim coming into our country, uh, and we have a high level of power, and so uh, we don't get a hall pass on anything. And as you move down the intersectionality uh, factors, uh, you get more free space, I think, to have difference. One of the key things I'd say about secularism, though, is very patronising to Muslim people because I think the hard secular left looks at the Muslim framework and thinks, oh, if they could just uh, stay here a bit longer and hear what we think about the secular or modern frame, they'd be just like us. Yeah. Whereas the average Muslim is looking at the secular world and is horrified and saying, we're with the Christians on this stuff. Yeah. But they're, they're not enough embedded in the community and there's enough hostility hostility in many areas of the West towards uh, Islam living in their community, but they kind of keep their heads down. Mm. So I think it's that intersectionality issue that's probably saying Christians have got no free pass and Muslims at this moment have a hall pass. Though that was different in Birmingham a few years ago. If you remember, there was a whole issue about what was being taught in schools and it was Muslim parents who were pushing back against some yeah. of the sexuality stuff. Yeah. And they, that was where they, they moved beyond the pale. I think the sexuality thing will be the thing that, 
eventually divides them on this one, yeah. that eventually you won't be able to hold specific views publicly about sexual ethics, whether you're Christian or Muslim. Yeah, yeah. How much of where we find ourselves today is down to the many bad examples that the world sees in Christianity? We know that the public face of Christianity on TV, the internet, social media, and even in the local Christian bookshop is often that of a prosperity gospel or a false teacher teaching a false works-based gospel. Yeah, well, you'd have to say social media has ramped up the pace of change at the moment. It's... Um, you know, you, you might be uh, thinking we're living in Babylon, but you bring Babylon in your back pocket in your in your um, mobile phone. I assume in England we call them mobile phones as they yeah. do in Australia. Yeah. yeah. Every time I do something in America, I have to remember what to say. <laughs> um, so I, I, if you wanted to access information about how the church was going or a position on the church 30 years ago, you'd have to go to a dry, dusty book or a journal or a magazine or perhaps a bit of television or a documentary. Now you just have to look at Twitter yeah. and it doesn't matter if it's true. It's just a pylon. And so some of the, those, everything we think about, everything comes to us immediately and it comes to us in a way that is um, unfiltered. And so the Christian framework can become bite-sized in its theological in expression, but also uh, bite-sized aggression towards it uh, can take on a whole level of meaning. But the prosperity gospel thing is true. I think in the West we have more a therapeutic gospel. Uh, Christian Smith, uh, American sociologist, uh, wrote a book with another lady whose name escapes me about the average U.S. teenager has a view of God that is what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Yeah. There's a, if you're good, good people go to heaven. Uh, it's therapeutic. It's, you know, most people are good. Christianity is one of the religions that can get you you're there. Yeah. It's about how you feel and God's there to make you feel okay about things. And it's deistic. It's God's at a distance. And if I need him, I can pull the chain, yeah. but he's not really there for me. And in one sense, that just doesn't carry any weight in the culture. And then that becomes embedded in evangelical settings. And you get this sort of mushy framework that's not quite Christian, not quite secular, but it's a funny mix of both. And I think that's part of the problem. Obviously, the other issue is bad examples. Well, hello, the last year has not been, you know, if you wanted to sort of cover your eyes every time you open the internet in the morning to see which Christian leader has fallen recently. And we've had a spate of them. Yeah. And so that becomes high level and high profile. And yeah. I think we're, we're in that space at the moment. Yeah. There's a big difference between being persecuted for your faith and being called out when you've actually done something wrong. We have to be careful not to develop a victim mentality and see every interaction and that doesn't go our way as some sort of a Christian persecution, right? Yeah, walking that line. In my book, I talk about let's not take on the victim mentality because at the moment it is the age of the victim. There's no mm -hmm. doubt about that. There's lots of traction if you can show that you are a victim to something or some sort of hashtag. I think Christians who play that victim game strongly get a very instant sugar rush hit for it, but I think it's going to make them feel a little bit sick down the line because I don't think that's what we're called to do. And I think there are many places where Christians can stand up in, in areas of law and politics and say, hey, if we're going to be fair, you've got to treat Christians the same in the public square as anyone else. But secularism doesn't really understand itself as anything except a um, what we call a, a sort of a... Uh, subtraction story secularism is what you get when you strip all the crazy stuff away yeah. like christianity yeah. and so it's saying you can't be a victim because we've got to get rid of this stuff that you're telling us because it's nonsense but i do think that 
we have to be very careful not to paint ourselves as woe is me. And if you read 1 Peter 4, 15, it says, if you suffer, don't suffer as a murderer or an evildoer. Okay, I'll try not to. Or even as a meddler. Yeah. And I go, I do think that we are still trying to figure out social media to the point that Christians can be meddlers on social media and poke the bear when they don't need to. Yeah. We've got to be very careful not to do that. We have to be, and even if that costs us, we are supposed to be winsome and faithful to how Jesus behaved. So I wouldn't want us to take on the victim mentality. I'd want us to stand up for those who are being um, persecuted in the sense of uh, in that the law is not being equal and fair with them. But as back to the postmodern thing, we don't get a seat at the table that's higher up than anyone else at the moment. We have to play at a level, level playing field with this. Yeah. Should Christians care about how they are seen by the world and what are the dangers in trying to be liked? Well, I do think we should care in how we're seen by the world, uh, but maybe not the way we might think, that uh, God chose Israel to be uh, a light to the nations. And in Deuteronomy, we're told uh, that the nations are to look on and go, wow, what other nation has laws like this? Their God must be great. And Israel didn't live like that. <laughs> and that was the problem, as you know. And But where God's people are faithful, it says, if you want to live, anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Jesus says, if they hated me, you know, your master, how much more will I hate you, my followers? And it doesn't necessarily, I think it's a different thing to be hated compared to being scorned and despised in a sense of belittled, I think, is a different way of putting it. But I do look at the world and I look at, some Christians who are saying, if only we can get the world to like us a bit more, they'll take us seriously. And Mark Sayers, another Australian in Melbourne, actually, who's written a book called Disappearing Church, said our narrative for a lot of years in the last 20 to 30 years was gospel relevance. How can we show that we're hip and urban and funky and we meet in pubs? And he said, that strategy is totally failed. He said, gospel resilience is what we need. Yeah. And I, you'd have to say that Part of it as Christians is to say, if we have a big enough view of who God is, then we don't need to be liked by other people. I mean, it's nice to be liked, but if we have a big enough view of, how, of God and how big he is, other people aren't small. They're the right size. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't fear them. Yeah. Uh, we don't have to chase their likes, yeah. but we don't have to feel fearful of them either when they don't like us. We yeah. can go... I'm waiting to hear on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. And I don't need to hear that from you now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm in my book, I'm trying to say our eschatological framework is going to dictate how we cope with this at the moment, because it suddenly seems that this may last for some decades yet. <laughs> it, it, this hard push against the Christian framework in the West will probably outlive me, mm. a young man that I am. Uh, so, you know, it, it's going to do that. So, we're going to have to prepare people for what it looks like to live in an age when they aren't viewed with, you know, sort of either disinterest or even, um, you know, generosity. I think that's what we're going to have to equip people for. Yeah. And we've seen examples of that, haven't we, with churches that have, you know, intentionally become seeker sensitive and they've really watered down what they do on a Sunday to, to be like the world. Oh, it, yes, exactly. Look, yeah. My strategy is not to do that. My strategy is to be weird enough on a Sunday that anyone who comes in goes, that is different. <laughs> that is not what I would have expected life to look like. And if, 
if they were giving me the same thing that I could get by switching on the telly in the morning, I wouldn't bother coming. Yeah. But I think it's uh, it, we're going and we're saying we don't have the same vision of human flourishing or the same end goal in life to the rest of the world. We don't do forgiveness like you do. We don't do sexuality like you do. We don't do uh, greed or those things. We're, we're, we're into something different. Yeah. And I think it's that dissonance we want to shape. I think we need to be a little bit more angular as Christians. And I don't mean angry. I mean angular. It's like yeah. people go, gee, that's different. I don't necessarily know if I go along with them, but that looks, it's very different to how we live our lives. That's what I think we need to do. Yeah. If we look back far enough, we will clearly see that God's people have been the bad guys before. Scripture assumes it, Jesus predicted it, and the apostles experienced it. Tell us about that, Stephen. Yeah, the, the narrative of the Bible is that if you want to be godly, if you want to live for Jesus, if you want to live as the people of God in the Old Testament, if you're the faithful remnant, if you're in Babylon, wherever you are, Uh, If you're in Jerusalem, wherever it is, or, you know, Athens, if you want to live for Jesus, if you want to live a godly life, you're going to find that you are scorned for it, even if you do good. And we read that in 1 Peter, you know, who will will want to um, harm you if you do good? But even if you do, says Peter, and that's a critical issue for me. And that tells me that something's going on below the surface. There's a spiritual thing going on here, too. It's not just the flesh, this worldly devices that we see around us. of There's something deeply spiritual going on that the forces of darkness do not like the forces of light. And we have to pray that God continues to do what he does by advancing his gospel as we proclaim it. And we just got to trust that God will do his work through his word. <laughs> there's no way around that. And I think everywhere you look at the word, you go, this is how we're going to suffer. And 1 Peter 5 is interesting where it says, after you have suffered a little while, you go, well, how little is a little while? Yeah. You go, and Peter's response would be, oh, just till Jesus comes back. Don't worry about it. Yeah. You, know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's flippant. But when he says a little while, eternity puts that into perspective a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think Christians who've been spoon-fed on a diet of best life now, yeah. I got to struggle with that. Yeah. That's why I think you'll see... We haven't bottomed out yet. I think there'll be a, a pruning and a sense of refining over the next 15 to 20 years. And our young people coming up through the ranks, they're going to have a lot more hostility and full frontal assault than we even have at, at you know, my generation and, and your generation. Yeah, sure. I mean, touching on that, everyone watching and listening will have already been and certainly will in the future be faced with the culture war coming at them, either at school or at work. What are some practical things that Christians should do when faced with being told that they have to think a certain way or accept a certain thing that is counter to what the Bible tells us? Well, first things I'd say is be prepared. So the time to start uh, preparing people for the hostility that they're going to face, especially on sexual ethics in the workplace, especially if that authenticity model, which I talked about before, is the thing that's driving it. And uh, we probably needed to prepare 15 to 20 years ago, but be prepared, disciple your people well and equip them for what life looks like on Monday morning. That's what I say to other pastors because I'm pastoring a church as well as working in another organisation that helps people in the workplace who are Christians. So I see both sides of it. Disciple people well, disciple them into the big story narrative of what God's doing in the world. I think that's critical. Form thick community. So 
you know, workplace is now the place of um, community. It's now the place where you form your visions of the good life. Big corporations are saying, uh, we're going to pitch a vision of humanity, you know, in our PR campaign it's, yeah. Yeah, to, to show you what human flourishing is like. But the culture war is interested in the Christian framework. And it used to be a case that you could keep your head down. Yeah. Now they will come for you. Silence is seen as violence, yeah. as the saying goes. Yeah. And I know enough people, when I write about these things on my blog, and especially my book, I've had people come back to me and say, that's the experience I'm having. Now I'm in a workplace where I'm told my social, the social agenda of this workplace, which is very woke, is tied to your KPIs. We want to see you um, promoting diversity in these areas of life. And you go, well, I have a different perspective than you. I think we will be shut out of some jobs. We won't be able to sign up to certain things uh, to get a certain job, but that's okay. It's not as if that's the worst Christians have experienced over the last yeah. uh, 20 centuries. Yeah. And one of the things we have to say, and Rod Dreyer writes about this in his book, so if you know Rod Dreyer's book, The Benedict Option, you may find that many careers are not open to Christians in the future, especially in the health industry, psychology, psychiatry, medicine, those things. We may need to look at forming other institutions, but even then, those other institutions may not be given state recognition mm. uh, so that you can get, you know, get into professional positions. But I, the other thing I'd say is that the most telling thing for a Christian in the workplace at the moment can be to be the non-anxious presence in the workplace. The person who people go, I'm not supposed to like what they think about sexual ethics, but gee, they're friendly. Gee, they love people. Gee, they're honest. Gee, they never take the kudos for someone else's work. And even though someone has scorned them in the past, they're still willing to forgive them. Yeah. I don't want to like them, but somehow I do because the culture is telling me these people are the problem, yeah. but I'm not yeah. seeing that. Yeah. That's a long-term game, but it's one I think we have to play. You've spoken about the pace of how things, you know, have changed, Stephen. How should Christians prepare for the next decade and what does that look like? Well, it's the difference between preparing for a, a cable car ride to the top of uh, Table Mountain in Cape Town and a uh, roller coaster ride. <laughs> because the future, we think, it looks like that and it's probably more like that. Yeah. So I think strapping, that would be the first thing. <laughs> the, 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 there's something paradoxical going on. Uh, I'm writing a program for another organisation I'm working on, on helping churches deal with the uh, uh, what I would call um, cultural evangelism. And one of the experiences we have is that it's never more hostile in the culture at the moment, but never more open as well. I think the hostility will ramp up. But I also think that people are starting to be open and going, we're putting a lot of money and time into trying to make this life flourish without, you know, the Christian framework. But the levels of anxiety in our culture, COVID has shown that up. Uh, my wife is a psychologist and is booked out. Yeah. And a month in advance, you can't get into a psychologist in Australia. The government is now funding 20 free sessions for people instead of 10 because there's a mental health tsunami coming in the wake of so much churn. And Christians can prepare for it by going, there's a day approaching, that's our main hope, that there is a day approaching. Meet together as God's people. Put your allegiance there. I, don't, I think we underestimate the church yeah. uh, at our peril, that 
this individualization, this authentic self has leached into Christians in a way as well, that the average church attendance is once every three weeks. Turning up is half the discipleship program, (laughs) just turning up. And I think that's critical. But also, as I was saying about never more hostile, never more open, Christian unions, Christian uh, on campuses at universities in Australia say that they have not seen evangelism fruit like they have the last four or five years for years. And part of the reason is people are coming who've got no Christian framework whatsoever, never went to Sunday school, never heard the Bible, and they meet Christians. And these are young people who are well-heeled, well-educated from nice schools coming to university and they've no idea what life's about. Yeah. And they meet people who've got a framework and a community and joy and a level of forgiving you. If you fall through the cracks, they won't cancel you. And they're going, I know that's not supposed to be right, but gee, it looks good. Yeah. So I think hold on to that fact as well. And what about censorship on social media? I mean, you mentioned earlier on about the workplace and mm. we've seen many examples where, companies are now doing research into people's social media feeds to see what they tweeted back in 2007 yeah. <laughs> and if you know see if they, if it matches up with what the company wants but do, do do you see a censorship with within you know christian voices going forward as well Stephen? yeah it's the wise as uh serpents harmless as, as doves things isn't it because i think what you're going to find with law coming in that's much more hostile to the towards the christian faith especially in the areas of sexuality what you can preach in church etc it might be a case of uh here's the um sealed section of sermons that we give access to members of our church only yeah and it it, maybe it is a lesson to christians need to be very careful what they say but at the same time they need to be able to say i've said this out of with no rancor no nastiness no bitterness um if you're going to judge me you know, in a court of law, you're going to have to show that prove that that was done with malintent. The problem at the moment is not laws that say, um, you know, this person was harmed by that. The problem is uh, laws that are saying, whether whatever your intent was, this person felt harmed by that. That's always the issue. I think Twitter, Facebook, all those social media platforms are um, places that Christians need to tread very carefully at the moment. Now, but it's not just Christians. You see cancel culture where someone who was last week woke is this week destroyed. Yeah. And Douglas Murray, who you may have read his book, The Madness of Crowds, says, uh, apart from the Christian framework, there's no place for forgiveness in our culture. A bad joke you told 10 years ago is still there to have a go at you. You know, it's like we crossed to the videotape and there you are in full yeah. technicolor saying something wrong. Yeah. I think our current generation of young people are going to learn to be more savvy with that than perhaps my generation. The digital natives are going to be very careful how they navigate that space. And maybe there's a sense we need to teach each other how to um, be very careful how we say things coming into the future in that public social media square, at least. Yeah. When we do face trials or persecution, how should we aim to view these and how can we do it in a way that glorifies the Lord? Yeah. Um, Again, you have to come back to Peter, don't you? When you think of what Peter was like as a disciple in the garden, cutting off the servant's ear, when you think about how he was angry about things and how he was proud, the flip side of that was when he saw Jesus, that when he was reviled, he did not revile. And when he was you know, abused, he didn't return it, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Mm. And I think 
Christians who can, Christianity is not, you know, in our culture at the moment, it's love is love. It's kind of this Mobius strip that winds in on itself. The Christian, the gospel says, love your enemies. It's totally different. It's totally different. And I think that's where you're going to find the long, hard yards to glorify God. Now, it may not feel like you want to do that. It may want, you may want to burn someone. And if you're a bit lippy like I can be, I can burn someone very easily on social media, which is why I hold back quite a bit mm. because that doesn't glorify the Lord. And I keep coming back to, can we trust ourselves to the one who judges justly? That just as Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? At the start of the covenant story, the climax of the covenant story has Jesus doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. Trusting himself to the one who judges justly. I think if Abraham can do that and Jesus can do that, uh, how much more we can do that yeah. on this side of salvation, I yeah. think. And um, yeah. that, that's not a hard, fast tactic. That's just a check our hearts. Let's be godly in the way we behave in this very ungodly moment, I think. How does this all end, Stephen? <laughs> um, the parousia, Jesus' return. Uh, yeah, hard to know, isn't it? Um, Part of the secular narrative framework has been Christianity, and a friend of mine teaches really well on this. He talks about Christianity sort of seen like the last 300 years as the, he used to be a prize fighter and he was landing every punch. And then over time, science and reason and materialism and sexual revolution started winning the day. And we started to get rid of all those myths. And Christianity is now like the punch drunk old time fighter who's swinging a few haymakers and not landing much. And he's about to hit the ropes as the secular narrative wins. But history has shown that secularism doesn't work like that. The 30s were the most secular place in Europe. And by the 50s, America was booming religiously. So was Australia, even though the 30s weren't in Australia, the 50s and 60s were massive. And then several hundred years ago, churches in the US were almost empty in many places. And then 500 years ago, it was nominal in many places across Europe. So secularism doesn't work the way that the secular uh, theory says it will, that it'll just sort of fill every space. Don't we trust that God can do a divine work among people's lives by stripping them of things they think are going to give them comfort and stripping that back? And I think maybe the tide has already gone out a long way and God may do a good work, um, yeah. even in the West. Now, that isn't to say he has to, but our focus is on the fact that one day, he, he will vindicate his people. Yeah. Um, just as he vindicated Jesus in the resurrection, our elongated uh, last day will one day, the last bit of that will vindicate us. Yeah. But in the meantime, don't just assume that secularism is on this steady march. I don't think it is. And history proves it doesn't work like that. It is much more stop-start. And uh, the fact that I've said Christian unions are seeing evangelistic fruit. If students are becoming Christians now, and becoming people who are influential in the workplace, in popular culture in 20 years' time, mm. who knows how things could go. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed speaking to you today. Oh. And congratulations on writing such a great book as well. It's going to be really helpful for so many people. Oh, thanks so much, David. It was a joy to write it. And it was a joy getting people responding to it in a way that encouraged them that it wasn't just about the culture wars. It's about uh, loving Jesus and joyfully living as those who are in a fight, but we can be joyous in the midst of it.
Yeah, for sure. Before you go, Stephen, have you got any closing thoughts? And also, how can people follow you on social media? And you also mentioned that you write a blog as well. So tell people yeah. about that. Yeah, well, it's the uh, humbly named stephenmcalpine.com. <laughs> uh, Stephen with a PH, stephenmcalpine.com. Um, not big on Twitter, though I am there at Stephen McAl- smcalpine6, uh, but I don't use it that much other than to link my blog stuff. I uh, do a bit of writing for other people, but I do think closing thoughts, we need winsome and uh, brave Christians moving forward. I think uh, we don't have to chase uh, friendship with the world but we can be the kind of people who are ready for when the cultural tsunami washes the bodies up on our doorsteps and say, I know no one loves you anymore. You've been canceled by everyone else. I know you don't even like who we are, but we can still love you and help you and show you the way, the truth and the life in Jesus. And I think just staying that staying that plan, sticking to that game plan is a good idea. Yeah. Stephen, brilliant. Well, we're going to add links to your um, social media and to your blog in the links below. Thanks again for your time, Stephen. Thanks so much, Dave. It's been great chatting with you. Mm-hmm.